0: to a message from Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. If you'd like to know more about Red or its ministries, please go to redchurch.org.au. I just want to say, because I didn't really get to say it, but I'm so grateful to be here and so incredibly humbled to be here. And um, it's true, we're actually friends. Um, I just feel like God did this really kind work when your, your people came over to Portland, and I just got this mysterious blessing of getting to connect with them and hang out with them and get to know them, and, um, and God has honestly shaped and changed my life in some miraculous ways because of your community. So I'm just thankful and grateful to be with you, honored and humbled in a true uh, non-American sense of the word, <laughs> uh, honestly, genuinely. I saw your video. What is that America video? America. America, America. What's it? Some Laurie, somebody. Laurie. Hugh Laurie. He sings about America. Anyway, it was accurate. yeah, so I'm just grateful to get to be here with you guys. And um, I've just had an extraordinary week, and, and really two weeks, but week learning from you guys, learning from Mark, Sarah, Terry, everybody, the whole crew. And, um, and just feel like I've, I've grown. You know, sometimes uh, you go places because you're supposed to contribute to their communities, and that was sort of the plan. <laughs> but, um, but I showed up here and I had asked God. God told me a couple weeks before I left for Australia that God was going to heal me in Australia. Uh, emotionally, just from some of the wounding that had happened in my life, and I feel like he's done that here. Uh, so I'm just so grateful. So I'm full today and hopefully able to bless you um, as we gather in the scriptures. So uh, with that, we're just going to jump right into a story from the book of Matthew, if that's okay. Uh, and I just want to give a bit of context because we're jumping kind of right in the middle of a story. Uh, In the verses uh, prior to the ones we're going to look at today, um, we read about this tragic death of this man named John the Baptist, who you're probably familiar with, the faithful prophet, cousin, and friend of Jesus. And there's no doubt that John's death paints for us, as we're entering into this text, a clear picture of the world in which Jesus found himself in, a place where the kingdom of God was at odds with both the political government and its leaders. In fact, John's rejection and ultimate death by the hands of the state was more than just an isolated event. It would also serve as a foreshadowing for Jesus' own death. And, at some level, would reveal to us, the readers, both the realities and the cost of true discipleship and life in the kingdom of God. All of which sets the stage for us this morning. So, turn with me in your Bibles, Matthew chapter 14. And while you're turning, because it'll take you so long, Allow me just to offer a quick, if you will, reminder of what we're about to get into. Remember that what we're reading in the book of Matthew is actually a biography. It's a recording of something that actually happened and is being passed on. Matthew is our author and he's written in such a way that his readers would find themselves in the story of Jesus and be made to ask again and again, what do I think about this man who claims to be king? In the beginning of this gospel, we found Jesus teaching and healing and casting out demons and caring for the poor and the marginalized, an exciting and vibrant expression of his ministry here on earth. But now, as we're in this text today, we're about to actually turn and uh, we're moving into what scholars call the collection of rejection narratives, where we find Jesus first rejected by his hometown based on rationalism. John the Baptist then rejected and thrown into prison by the political powers, and the leaders of that day based on sensualism. And those are weird stories that Mark would like to unpack for you later. (laughs) And today we're gonna continue in that narrative as we find Jesus' own disciples disrupting things, compelled perhaps by the most understandable and relatable of all defects, realism. With that, let's look at verse 13. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now our story opens with Jesus just learning of John's death, and in a few verses prior to this one, we see that John's disciples had come for his body and buried him. And after that, they go and tell Jesus what had happened. And Jesus, uh, as Jesus hears of John's death, we read that he gets into a boat and he boat and he withdraws to a solitary place. And with good reason. He goes to a place where he could be alone, something we've seen Jesus do in the Gospels over and over again. Now the word solitary here can be translated wilderness or deserted place or even lonely place. And it's here that we actually get a glimpse into another piece of Jesus' humanity. Remember that he is the greatest example of true, spirit-filled humanity. So he's not just being moody and depressed like some of us would be. He knows that in his humanity, being alone is actually good for him and his grief. And no doubt he was grieving. He had lost John. This was his friend, his partner, his family. And he lost him in a manner in which must have revealed to Jesus, even if only in a small way, what lay ahead of him too. Needless to say, I think there was a lot to process and to consider for Jesus. And this time alone was his moment to breathe, to pray, to think, and to grieve. But as we read in our text, this time was short-lived. In the second part of verse 13, we read that the crowds, unaware of Jesus' pain and grief and stress, they follow him from the towns (laughs) to the deserted place. And they don't only follow him, but they come with, the, the text says, needs, needs of their own. And we read that as soon as Jesus lands on the shore, see, he's on a boat headed to the other side uh, of the lake, and they're on foot, does that make sense? So he's just cruising at like boat speed, and, and they're all hustling around. So as soon as he, he doesn't even make it onto the land, and, and as soon as he lands there, it says, we, we read, he sees them. And he's not even on the land. Do you get that? That's like a frustrating... If you're trying to grieve, you'd be like, please, I'm not even out of my car yet. You know those little humans that are just like, get me out or whatever. And you're like, I'm not even out of the car either myself. I don't have humans, but I know that's how they are. (laughs) So before he even gets to the shore, they're there. His his boat pulls up onto the... We read he sees them. And his reaction, in my opinion, is nothing short of remarkable. He isn't angry. He isn't frustrated. He isn't avoidant. Instead, we're told he is full of compassion. N.T. Wright describes the moment this way. He says, before the outward and visible works of power in healing the sick comes the inward and invisible work of power in which Jesus transforms his own feelings into love for those in need. Jesus' own vulnerability seems to be the gateway for his compassion. So Jesus moved with this compassion, does what he's done time and time again. He heals their sick, And in the middle of his own time of need, he spends time amongst those in need. Now, eventually, we read the day wears on, and we find his disciples trying to wrap things up. Look down at verse 15. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place, and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. Now, there seems to be a hint of impatience or maybe even fatigue in the disciples' tone. They essentially are telling Jesus what to do here, getting a little bit bossy. And, um, and they don't preface it with their usual title uh, for Jesus, Lord. They don't start out that way. They kind of go right in. And they're getting pretty frank. And they say, look, basically, we've been here and we've been doing this all day long. And there's too many people here. And they're not going to go home and eat if you don't tell them to. So you need to do that. Now, historically, we know that it isn't likely that so large a number of people would have uh, have been able to buy enough food in any villages close to this deserted or wilderness place to actually meet their needs. The people would have had to bring their own provisions. So the disciples actually aren't wrong here. They're taking their circumstances at face value and asking, what else can we do? Apparently something. Jesus here, without losing his sense of reality, responds and says, no, they don't need to leave. You give them some food. The disciples now, undoubtedly and understandably baffled, respond and say, verse 17, we have here only five loaves of bread and two fish. Fair, right? That's seven pieces of food. I don't even know how that's a thing. I don't even know what's a, what's a real fish. We were eating one last night. It's very small, there's not a lot on there. So you can imagine, they're thinking, this isn't going to work. One scholar I read noted that there was a hint of sarcasm in their answer. Who could know, but I like to assume that because I'm prone to sarcasm. <laughs> The disciples here are showing Jesus what they've got, and they basically say, this is it, this is it, the two loaves and the fish and the whole thing, and this is all we got, and we're gonna feed all these people, you see all these people here, with just this. And you can almost hear their protest. There are no questions of how or even why. It doesn't even seem to interest them to have like a conversation about this. Or perhaps maybe they're just perplexed. They're looking at what they have and are clear that it's not sufficient, it's not enough. So Jesus placed a demand on them here that they were incapable of fulfilling. And despite all that they had seen him do, they're still fixated on their own perspective and limitations. And again, I wonder if maybe it was the simplicity of the need that blinded blinded them to his ability. You know, it's not like leprosy or death or anything like that, we're just talking about dinner. So you know, those small things get confusing. And while for sure I can't say, Despite their unbelief and exasperation, Jesus in his kindness responds and he says, verse 18, bring them here to me. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and two fish, and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and he broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the people. Now notice that the disciples weren't called to creatively dream up or conjure up some strategic plan for charitable action. They were simply asked to give what they had to surrender their meager provision and let him do the rest. And while it may seem they do this with little faith, they still do it, even at a cost to themselves. Scholar R.T. France beautifully describes what their giving really entails when he says, to surrender even this meager provision to Jesus was either an act of reckless obedience or evidence of a more confident faith in Jesus' problem-solving ability than we've seen the disciples displaying elsewhere. Still uncertain and perhaps even clueless of the outcome, the disciples hand over their food, and with it, a possible forfeit of what they have to benefit someone else. Next, we read that Jesus directs the people to sit down and essentially prepares them to eat. In the Greek, direct is understood as a command, and sit is actually this image of lounging or laying, a position first century Jews would have taken when at a meal or a banquet or a feast. This picture, then, is both prophetic and familiar. With authority and hospitality on display, Jesus sets the stage for the miracle. And then we read that he gives thanks and he breaks the loaves. In other words, he blesses it and he breaks it. Language we'll hear again in this book, but around a different meal. And after doing this, he gave the food to the disciples and the disciples gave that to the people. And in this act, we see Jesus subtly yet sweetly inviting them to not only participate, but to share in the miracle itself. And through them, something extraordinary happens. Verse 20, they all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men, besides the women and children. So boom, just like that, miracle. No lightning, no thunder, no angels singing, a little bit disappointing, but everyone eats, which in my book is a massive miracle, huh, amen? We're already thinking about lunch, and that's part of our gifting. So, uh, so we're doing that, and we read not only that everyone eats, but that they are satisfied. So it wasn't just sufficient enough to kind of curb the appetite. It was a filling-to-the-brim experience. The imagery for satisfied here is that of a fattened calf, which I know is, like, attractive, but at least you're getting the picture. It's like a robust image of, of what God is doing. Jesus' provision here went beyond any normal comprehension or even faith-filled expectation. And we read that the disciples picked up leftovers with broken pieces of food, which is language that points us back to the initial meal and the depth and the breadth of the miracle. And and on top of that, we read that there were 12 baskets left over, painting for us a picture not only of provision, but of the grandiosity of the miracle itself, amongst other things. Now, before we move on from our text, I want to note one more thing, because I think it's important, particularly as an American woman. You'll notice at the end of our text, Matthew, who is at least partially a product of his patriarchal society, does not bother counting the women or children. And as a woman, I'm just not loving that. I don't love that, Matthew, so let's talk more about it. But what I want us to look at, I want want us to look at it this way. God allowed the influence of Matthew's culture to come through in the writing. God doesn't censor his human author, at least in that sense. But notice, just because Matthew was influenced by a culture that devalues women and children, that certainly doesn't mean Jesus devalues them. Because Jesus provided food for the women and the children that Matthew didn't count. In other words, Jesus counted them. Stanley Hauerwas says it like this, that women and children are not counted may indicate that they had less status than men, but such is not the case in the new Israel constituted by Jesus' body and blood. Jesus does not count those he feeds. He does something far more important. He feeds them. And I have to confess, um, it's easy for me to read this story and to think back to a time I saw it slapped up onto a flannel board, I don't know if you have those, or displayed through cartoon vegetables. (laughs) And um, it's easy for me to minimize what's happening here, even to assume that I know what both Jesus and Matthew are after. Theologian Dale Bruner once said, the Christian faith is nothing if not a supernaturalism. And while I get the sentiment, this story doesn't exactly fall into the list of miracles I recall when I'm needing to conjure up greater faith. But that wouldn't have been true for Matthew's audience, at least we don't think so, because Matthew's audience was built from primarily a Jewish readership, meaning that as they read this story, their minds would be carried back to other stories from the Old Testament. Stories like that of Elisha, a famous prophet in Israel who had given 20 loaves of bread, but 100 men and had some left over. Or a more obvious example of Moses, under whose leadership hundreds of thousands of Israelites received miraculous provision of manna from heaven regularly. All of this taking place in the desert or the wilderness, leaving his readers to consider one pointing and provocative conclusion, that this man, Jesus, here in the wilderness feeding the masses was more than just a famous Jewish rabbi. He was, in fact, the new Moses the greater Moses, and unlike Moses, he wasn't just a spokesperson for God, he performed the miracle himself. He provided bread for Israel, but not for ordinary sustenance alone. Matthew's readers would have understood that this story was imbuing with layers of meaning and foreshadowing. Foreshadowing like when Jesus looked up to heaven and he gives thanks and he breaks the loaves, he wasn't just practicing a Jewish ritual. He was pointing to the moment when we arrive at the Lord's Supper and we see the way that Jesus truly provides for the world in the breaking of his own body and the way that he gives himself to his own disciples. As one author put it, the miraculous feeding of the multitude was a short-term solution. The upside-down alternative for Jesus was to offer himself as the permanent bread of life. His miracle is not separated from the work he had been sent to do. And this miracle was unique. Notice that there's no mention of the crowd's reaction or response to the miracle. 5,000 people plus, and no one mentions like a thank you or a wow, you know? Like, it's not even recorded. It's not like, hey, and thanks, Pete. I appreciate that. It was yummy, or whatever. Uh, and, I, and it may not be recorded, so to be fair, maybe they were very polite. But by all standards, according to our reading, they're not polite. And uh, they didn't say thank you. But, I believe that's because this miracle wasn't for the people. At least not in the way it was for the disciples. For those who knew him best, for those who walked and sat closest to him, who with their hands actually administered the miracle. I believe the miracle was for them. That it was an invitation for the disciples to not only see, but to experience Jesus as both man and God to find within him both the ordinary and the extraordinary, to see him as rabbi and teacher, yes, but also as friend and shepherd. A disciple is never without needs themselves. And that's true for all of us. Over the summer, I took sabbatical, but before I left, people kept saying things to me like, you can't give away what you haven't received, and you can't pour out what you don't have. So I must have been putting off some kind of vibes, do you know what I mean? I don't know going on, I was like, what? I was like, why are you saying, okay. But it's true, exactly what they're saying is actually true. Being a disciple can often feel paradoxical, meaning it can feel contradictory. It's like there's this strange dance between flesh and humanity and spirit. It's this place where we both be and we do, where we receive and we give, we love and we lead, we need and are filled. And it's here in our text that we see the beauty of this paradox so clearly portrayed. From the beginning, we know that the disciples were with Jesus and would have known better than the crowd the depth of his sorrow and his need for solitude. Jesus' humanity was on display before them, and yet they see their rabbi, full of love and full of compassion, in need of healing himself, begin to heal others. Henry Nouwen once said that love often makes itself visible in pain, and it's here in the depth of Jesus' pain that we see his love most perfectly displayed. Jesus was not just revealing who he would be to the crowds, but he was revealing who he would be to them. Jesus' pain, it was the greenhouse for his authentic affection and participation in what God was doing. And what he displayed in this moment was an invitation for his disciples to do the same. The crazy thing about this text that consistently stands out to me was that he wasn't asking them to do something he wasn't doing himself his humanity, fully alive with grief and loss and pain, and yet from that place, he shows that it was not his limitation, but it was in fact the vehicle through which the miracle would come. Still, we know that the disciples struggled. They had in their hands the meal that they had prepared and planned for, it. it wasn't enough for everyone. Do we have any type A people in this room? Okay, three of you? That's (laughs) shocking. Because I'm here, and I'm like, I'm not, I'm not sharing with you what you didn't prepare and bring. Anyone else like that? Right? I'm like, listen, I brought my lunch. I'm not here to share. What I, maybe I'm just a selfish person. I think y'all are more selfish than you're letting on, but that's okay. It's church. Right? But, but they had prepared and planned for this. Now, can you imagine that circumstance? I, we brought enough for us, for our crew, for our situation. We planned and prepared ahead of time for this. It's just not enough. And their focus here wasn't on what they Had It was on what they didn't have, and they saw that as the end of the story. They were just being realistic, they were being practical, and yet helpless, baffled, and impatient, they were reluctant to hand over what little they had because they had reasoned in their mind that it wouldn't work. To give God this little thing or to give them more of of their actual selves, it wouldn't work, it wouldn't create, it wouldn't be the thing that they actually needed or that the people needed. Jesus, can't you see that? It doesn't make sense. And still, Jesus, with great patience, says, you give them some food. He didn't say, I'll give it to them. Give me your lunch, I'll give it to them. He said, you give them some food, an annoying command. And yet, with that one sentence, sentence, he is disrupting their sight, their ability to see their poverty as a limitation instead of a resource. In that moment, Jesus invites them to imagine a different reality and outcome to see as he sees, to give up their prideful assumption that they, on their own, are their own creators, they are their own resource, to believe that their gesture of generosity, born from poverty, could become something incredible. And in his invitation to us in this moment is the same. Dale Bruner says this, the church learns from this story, bring them here to me means to give Jesus everything we have in practical obedience, however insignificant that everything may seem to be. Doing what we can with what we have is a wonderfully flexible instrument. Under Jesus' blessing, it can bring help of the most creative kind. Jesus will often ask us for the unreasonable, for the small offering that we have. By the way, small is a relative term in the kingdom of God. And if you're anything like me, you'll probably protest when he asks for this ridiculous thing, I can't do it, I don't have time, I don't have the energy or the ability, I don't even know what the steps would look like for me to take. All I have is this, that, or the other. And you may even discount every reason why it won't be sufficient. I have this um, wonderful gift of telling God what to do and how to do things. And he just doesn't get on board most of the time. But it's part of my spiritual gifting. I like to say, hey, we should do this. Let's do it this way on this time frame. And he's like, uh no ah, no, that's kind of how you guys say it. Uh, (laughs) Kind of that way. Because I like to calculate how things are going to work out. See the path before me. Help God along on the journey and the process. And for some reason, he hates that. In our text, we see something that we see all over the scriptures. And he loves revealing this. Something called the principle of multiplication. Where in the kingdom of God, a small thing can become a huge thing where out of nothing, something is formed, where in barren wombs, babies are given a home, where dead things actually come back to life, where a small sacrifice becomes the birthplace for a miracle, where what we have is handed over, offered up in and by faith, and its only hope is a miracle. Life as a disciple in the kingdom will demand a belief in this reality over and over and over again. Jesus gives his disciples a responsibility. He says to them and to us, you give them something which requires us to give up what we have in our hands, even if it's our own very selves, and to look for him for the provision. And with his next breath, he says what he said to them, bring it here to me. Like a father, gently on his knees, down, looking right at you at eye level, bring it here to me. You see, despite what we assume or believe, we aren't responsible for the miracle, but we are responsible for the surrender. In our story, we don't know the miracle has happened until we find it in the hands of the disciples, right? There's no wham-bam moment where we read like, and then the miracle happened, and people were fed. All we read is that the disciples went out and gave to the thousands and thousands of people, breaking piece by piece. In In the empty hands of the hungry, we find Food that satisfied, person by person, as they broke it and gave it to them. Jesus took what they had, and now the miracle becomes their own. They're conduits of it. They're the ones passing it out and feeding the 5,000. And somehow, I'm sure, it's not what they would have had in mind, yet I think it's also what they probably would have hoped for if they had the faith to. It was greater and different and more mysterious and somehow Theirs. God delights in shattering, pint-sized expectations of who he is and what his followers can do if they would learn to bring to him what they have already been given. He is a God who is able to give beyond expectations, beyond what our responsibilities outline. He is lavish and he is outrageous, eager to give us more than we think possible. I would bet that often comes differently than we expect, But he gives nonetheless if only we'll give what we have trust him with the invitation to lay down our reasons and calculations to surrender our belief that we are responsible for the provision and to actually trust him for the outcome what would happen in us if we did just that and and we have to ask ourselves that question this morning um, I, I, like I said, I went on sabbatical this past summer, and I got to hang out with Sarah Deutscher in Italy. <laughs> Poor me. Uh, and uh, it was just amazing for a week. But I was, I was gone 10 weeks, because Mama needed some rest. You know, these people are crazy, and uh, it's hard. <laughs> it's hard to do the work. <laughs> um, but bless you. We're all those people. Um, you know, and I have to say, when I started sabbatical, I was, it didn't start well. It didn't, it didn't go off without a hitch. I actually, like, I, I was like one day out, flew to Florida, then the next day flew to Scotland, which isn't a bad idea, uh, unless you're cranky. Uh, and so I started out in Scotland, and those first two weeks were rough, and I was with my mother, the only person who could have been with me, and not um, left. And she was very gracious uh, in our time together. And about halfway through sabbatical, once I was like sober-brained, because the first two weeks I was like <laughs> just crazy, I was reflecting on the difficulty of those first few weeks and realized that I wasn't just jet-lagged, or fatigued from life, or had a fear of leaving my life for 10 weeks, which was all really real. I realized that part of my struggle actually came from the posture from which I entered into sabbatical. Um, If there was imagery for it, it was like my fists were clenched, and my arms were tightly to my chest. And I was holding on to all the things that I thought made me me, things that made me feel safe. And these things were the things I had gathered over the years as a leader, as a pastor, as a friend, secure in my community. Uh, and, and I was honestly like a golem creature in those two weeks. Like, have you seen Lord of the Rings? You should. It's uh, filmed in New Zealand. Anyway, fun fact. I don't know if you knew that. Uh, but it is. And I'm like him. Like, ah, my precious. And I'm holding on to these things like, yeah. you know, my mom's like, how are you doing? I'm like, oh, you know, like, no. Oh. And I was. I was just like. Get out of my face. Why are you so grubby? And she's like, do you want to relax? I'm like, no, I am. You know, (laughs) it was so bad. And it was weird because night after night, I was recounting, I really was, recounting all the ways I had kept these sacred things about myself and how I was going to preserve them throughout sabbatical. And um, I was completely afraid to let go. I mean, just completely, but who's going to admit that to themselves in Paris, not me. (laughs) And all the while, Jesus was there. Because he is. He's so kind. He doesn't leave us in moments like that. He's not disgusted by us. He's filled with compassion. And he was smiling, and he was patient. And every day, I sensed him inviting me to let him hold those things that I thought I needed to keep together, those things I needed to keep um, close so that they would make me me or make me most happy. And after a few weeks, I mellowed out a little bit (laughs) enough one night to hear him ask me, what are you afraid of? So of course I told him, because I'm bossy that way, and we have that kind of relationship. And I told him that I wouldn't have anything if he took what I was holding. And I began to tell him why my ideas were better. See, I have a problem with that. It's like a massive sanctification problem. But I went on and on. This is why, God, this doesn't work. This is why I cannot give you what you're asking for. It doesn't make sense. What happens if I let go of certain ideologies or certain things? And, you know, sabbatical is supposed to be this time of reflection and healing and transformation, and I thought we could do that. I thought we could do that while I was still holding on to the things I thought were most important. And don't get me wrong, I wanted it. I wanted it. Before sabbatical, if you had asked me, man, are you excited? I'm like, I'm excited, I'm ready. I want all that Jesus has for me. I want all the healing. I want him to do the deep work. I wanted to see a miracle. I really did. I wanted him to do something in me, but the truth was I didn't want it to cost me anything. Turns out miracles are um, quite costly, and require, by the way, impossibility to actually be miracles. So one night in a small, very, very unconditioned, unair-conditioned apartment in, in Paris. By the way, it was the hottest summer in Europe. The summer while I was there, my red-headed little self, it was hot. Uh, I was laying in bed, sweating, my mother dead asleep. I'm crying. She's not aware, which is is something I need to work through in counseling. And, uh, (laughs) And Jesus came to me again, and he offered me this invitation to surrender and to trust. And there was not a certainty of the outcome. I didn't have some vision of what he'd do in me. No promise or guarantee of a miracle. Absolutely none of that, which I asked for, by the way. I just realized that to get what I was really after, to embrace this life as a true disciple, because that's what I am first and foremost. He is my life, not this. I mean, this is great, but this is not it. And if he's not here at the center of it all, I'm doing nothing, nothing, nothing that really matters. So as a disciple, if I didn't get this, if I, if I wasn't willing to let go of the things that I thought made me significant or let go of the things he was inviting me to, I was missing the mark of discipleship altogether a truly small, measly representation of my life for the things that I was holding on to. And I, that night, surrendered in hope that he would do something better, he would do something bigger than I imagined. And the good news is, he did it. Now, again, I told him how we should do it, and he didn't do it at all like that. And he didn't do it in one fail, big swoop of a moment. He did it in a million little moments, a million little miracles in me. And this is part of that. It wasn't until the, uh, the last few weeks um, uh, of sabbatical that I realized that it was happening. And the week, a week before I came back from sabbatical, I was telling Jesus how not different I felt. You know, I was like, man, when John Mark went away, he like had this God moment, you know. And he was like, I'm different, I'm better, I'm nice. And, um, and I wasn't coming back that way. <laughs> you know, it wasn't, it wasn't going to be my story And in that that space, he showed me that I wouldn't be able to see that the miracle, not the miracles he had done in me, until I stepped back into my life. And it was true. In this past month, and even today, I have seen my miracle. Not in the way I expected it. And not in the way I would have asked him for it, because I'm not even remotely creative enough to do that. But he has come, and he has set me free. And he has healed me. And he is healing me. This teaching today was for me when it was prepared. It's a message I need to hear over and over again, yes, as a pastor, but more importantly, as a disciple of Jesus. And I also think it's for you, for, for the disciples who are actually tired and weary and who need to remember that Jesus actually sees you and that he loves you, that he knows you, and that not even his own grief could keep him from being filled with compassion towards you. That he truly knows what it is that you're walking through and that he longs to heal you. And he longs to actually do the miracle you've been asking him for. Still, I wonder if it's for those who've heard the invitation of Jesus even recently, not just those for the first time, but those who are already disciples who have an invitation extended to them for more. Who who need to actually surrender the, the small meal that they have. And whether that be actually something tangible you know of already in your spirit, or if it's yourself. If you go, I'm the meal. It's not enough, it's not sufficient, it's not ample to do the thing that we're asking you to do with it. I wonder if this story is for you. Those of you who look at your hands and you see inadequacy and barrenness and deficiency, and deep down you're still hoping that something might happen, something could change. And again, maybe it's for those who need a miracle today. And it's okay, church, to say you need that. To ask again, It's good to keep asking the Father who gives good gifts. Maybe you got scared in surrender and you let reason and impossibility keep you from giving what you had. Maybe it was the odds, maybe it was the surrender of disappointment and loss that has kept you from coming to offer what you have. I don't know your stories and I don't know where God has you. But I think for all of us today, the invitation remains with the promise that the one who has called you is faithful not simply to provide and to be sufficient, but to do so abundantly. May that be true for you today and in this community. I would love to pray for you. Will you stand with me? I just wanna pray God's blessing, but also that invite his spirit to come and just to keep ministering to us. And will you come and just make your way up here? Holy Spirit. We're just content to wait on you. We're not in a hurry. We want to even now in this moment to lay down our reason, to lay down all the excuses, all the questions, all the things that don't make sense and just boldly enter into your presence. To allow you to meet with us, to teach us, we lay down our good ideas before you. And we ask for the better thing, we ask for your presence. So come Holy Spirit, come and settle on your people. Bring freedom today, bring healing today. Bring life where there's been death. Come Holy Spirit.